once your data is out there, it's really hard to you know roll it back and undo the damage that has been done. Hey, Michelle, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. Thanks uh, Thanks for taking the time out of your day, out of your week. Um, I know it's the day before uh, Ramadan, but yeah. thanks for uh, taking the time out um, and joining us tonight for a you know, just a quick discussion. Um, I wanted to introduce you to uh, my co-host, Al. Al, this is Michelle, Michelle Al. Hey, brother, how hey, you Al. doing? Thanks for coming through. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, yeah, man, I, I really enjoyed your, uh, your, uh, webinar. Uh, I thought it was, I mean, it was something I've always thought about a little bit and it was a bit more formal platform for me to kind of hear it from someone, uh, that's, uh, that's been in the IT cybersecurity field for a while. Um, but just for some background, um, I kind of wanted to hear from you, like how you started a little bit more in depth on how you started and how you kind of grew your career. Um, to where you're at now? Yeah, sure. I mean, my career started um, pretty much when I was in middle school. I, I I knew I was interested in the tech world. I had a computer. My dad got us a computer. We used to play games on it, uh, old DOS-based system. And I was always curious to how things work. I used to take things apart. So I, so I basically had that hacker mindset on you know, just, just trying to um, figure out how to beat the system. Uh, we used to play games all the time, and we used to figure out how you know, cheat codes work, uh, how to hack the game so that we could you know, go on to the next levels and stuff like that. So that's what piqued my interest, basically growing up with computers um, and getting started that way. Uh, electronics was a big part of that. Uh, we used to build our own computers. Uh, so that that basically piqued our interest into how stuff works. And at, at a very young age, I was sure that I want to do something around computers, either programming or engineering or, or something along those lines. I did not want to be a doctor. What was like the first formal, not formal, but like your first experience with like hacking or like cracking something? Was it like a game or software? Yeah, it was mostly games. So it was, I don't know if you remember the game Doom, Doom 2. Uh, it had a lot of cheat codes in it, uh, so we used to go uh, in the system files. Um, in those days, games were created very, um, yeah. there were simple files that were in the file system, then they didn't mm -hmm. encrypt it, they didn't hide anything, so we used to just fiddle around with the uh, files of the game that used to break, uh, we used to figure out how cheat codes work, so it was primarily with games, it started off with that. Uh, but then we tried to take it to the next level. You know, it was websites, figuring out how to make websites. In the process, we learned, um, you know, me and my brother, when, we, when I say we, it's, it's me and my brother who used to be together. Um, and we used to you know, fiddle around with uh, you know, tech things. Mm -hmm. So we used to break websites. We used to figure out uh, how to log into them, how to crash websites, our own websites, and then you know, fiddle around with others. So that was my first taste of how stuff works, how to break it. And in my opinion, that was the best way to learn things. So after taking your webinar, I kind of was able to take 
something that I've always done and practices that I always had, but never really put the name, I guess, to the concepts and ideas. So how did you, is that something that you always just had a knack for? Yeah, so OSINT or open source intelligence came, it came as an uh, offspring to the hacking, the, the, the ethical hacking, uh, the investigative mentality, digging deeper into um, the, the, the online world. It, it was a result of all of that. I never trained formally for open source intelligence. It just came naturally over you know, the past 10, 15 years of doing it. I didn't even know I was doing it. Um, I was analyzing code, analyzing images, what data lies behind it. Uh, and most of the stuff was for my own gain, either investigating you know, other people, other friends, people who had wronged me, um, uh, you know, helping out other people. In that process, I basically learned the techniques. And then later on in life, you know, a couple of years ago, I took formal courses, formal training, read lots of books about OSINT. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I really got into the field. So I want to come back to the point about um, people that have wronged you. But, but before we do that, what, what is your, uh, so by, by trade, you're a pen tester, right? Correct. Yeah. So can you just give us a brief overview? Like what is pen testing? For someone that has no idea. Yeah, so pen testing or penetration testing is ethical hacking. There's another term, white hat hacking for that, as opposed to the black hats, which are the bad guys. So hackers are generally considered the bad guys, uh, people who perform illegal uh, acts of breaking websites, stealing data. Ethical hackers or pen testers like myself are the opposite. So we we understand how hacking works. We use the same tricks, same tools that the bad guys um, utilize, but we use it for good. We use it to protect organizations. So in a typical scenario, um, a company would hire me to test their own systems. We would have legal contracts between each other, certain um, limitations that, uh, like, like not breaking their website or not breaking their networks. And we test their systems just as a hacker would test it. Uh, and once we have those test results, we share it with the customer. We say, this is how we got in. This is how we cracked your passwords, or these were the holes or the flaws that were evident in your wireless or your network or whatever the case may be. And we give them solutions. We tell them how to fix it. And that's that's what they pay for. And, that, and how much of that is technical sitting behind a computer and how much of that is um, more physical, like either being in person or... Um exploring physical controls? And that's a great question because the majority of the work is technical in nature for a pen tester. Um, So going back a few steps, there's multiple types of pen testing involved. So depending on the type, for example, if I'm hired to break a website, so that's a web application pen testing, that is completely remote, that's 100% technical in nature. If it's a physical pen test, I to, to breach the physical security of um, the premises, um, see how safe their locks are, um, if their guard lets me in, all of that falls under social engineering. That's also a pen test. That's a physical penetration test. Um, wireless pen tests also require physical presence because you need to be close to a wireless um, hotspot to actually test it. Um, then there's pen testing that involves um, telephone conversations and trying to social engineer a person and asking them their password 
over the phone by imitating someone else like an IT admin or a delivery person asking for information about you know who's in charge. So depending on the type of pen test, I would say the majority of it is technical sitting behind a computer, but there but anything that has to do with social engineering and that that has more of a physical flavor to it. So kind of rounding back now to exposing people that have or exposing or investigating people that have harmed you. It, it has. So there have been incidences in the past where, I mean, everyone goes through this. Um, there are idiots in this world who, who wrong you all the time. Um, it's happened to me. People have, you know, either uh, stolen money or you know, promised something that didn't come clean on that. Uh, I started this off when I was in university where, uh, you know, petty little things for, you know, people either uh, bully you or, you know, uh, do something wrong. So I, I won't go into too much mm -hmm. details just to hide the identity yeah. of the situation. But, you know, the, the result of it was I did use my hacking skills to get back at um, someone who was messing around with me. And the way I did it was uh, basically I set up a keylogger um, in a computer lab. So what that means is I knew, so back in the days, you know, 12, 13 years ago, um, laptops weren't as common uh, in universities. So people used to check their emails from the computer labs. So what I did was I, I put a key logger, which records all the keystrokes uh, within the computer for everyone who sits there. And I knew where this person used to sit. I installed it on a couple of PCs. And once they got out of their position, I went in, checked the key logger, looked at their username, their password, logged into their account, and basically disabled their account you know, just yeah. for fun. And so they, they, they couldn't like get that. into their emails. Yeah, it was simple, but many people at that point didn't know these techniques. Um, it was not that common. Um, now the same techniques wouldn't work. Uh, it's ever evolving. But you know, I screwed him over. Uh, yeah. he, <laughs> so I asked this question because Al and I know someone uh, cl uh, close to us, uh, good friends with me, uh, closely related to Al, who unfortunately fell victim to an online, uh, you know, product. They someone was selling some shoes on Instagram, and he fell for your typical, you know, send me the money, I'll send me your address, I'll send the shoes. Um, obviously, using a platform that isn't backed by insurance or anything like that. Where can we go with a singular data point being a telephone number? How much information available publicly about a person? With just their telephone number well this is the art of OSINT so this is what OSINT involves you take one piece of information like a phone number which in this case is probably the most important piece of information because most people don't have multiple phone numbers it's it's only one tied to that person um, and you take that phone number there are hundreds of public um, people search websites out there um, which you can enter their phone number on a simple Google may also reveal some information and then you pivot off of there uh, you may get a name you may get an email address uh, you may get a service provider like t-mobile Verizon, sprint whatever and you can take that information further and then pivot off of that the eventual goal is to find the person's profile who is this person who owns this telephone number um, there have been many situations where um, I've, I've tried this and i 
look at records on who owns the phone number. It turns out it's someone else, a person's relative. From the relative, I pivot on to that person, go on to their social media profile, figure out who they are, look at their email addresses, um, check where else have they used these email addresses, then pivot off to multiple social media accounts. Eventually, I have an entire dossier of information about the person. Um, which may help uh, in the investigation or may help to identify who the person was. Yeah, I mean, that's something uh, that's something we tried, right? So from from a perspective of someone who's not skilled, we got I got pretty far personally, um, but it was just amazing to, to see from one data point being a phone number that how much information I was able to find. I mean, I don't know how much of it's correct. There's obviously a, a process right. of going and verifying that, but, um, you know, it did pull results. It did pull potential names and uh, city and state. Yeah, and I would add that verification is extremely important. Um, I would say half the time when I'm doing investigations like this, and it's somebody who's aware of these techniques, um, that information is incorrect, either corrupted by the person or they're using burner phones, a virtual telephone number or an email address that's a throwaway email address. So a lot of the times it's you're gonna come to these dead ends uh, or misinformation will be out there. So you have to verify, you have to check that the information I got, is it really accurate or not? And that's mm -hmm. all part of OSINT. Because too many times I've seen people bank on information that they Google, and then they take it for you know, as the complete truth when it's not, and then that derails their entire investigation. I do, I do work on a computer, but I do graphic design by trade. So I don't know anything when it comes to this world as far as hacking and coding and programming, it really fascinates me. And tell me if I'm correct with understanding this. So OSINT is not necessarily one method or two methods. It's the art of using different tools and methods digitally um, to do this investigation. Is that correct. a good, good way to say uh, it? Yeah, that, that's accurate. A lot of people think it's just these online tools, looking at the person's social media profile, that's OSINT. No, that's a very small subset of OSINT that anyone can do. And in fact, most people you know, you know, do it. Um, I've seen a lot of people before they you know, uh, meet other people, either professionally or on a dating website. The, the first thing they do is Google their, na their name, their social media profiles. Yeah, that's part of OSINT. But when you're doing investigations like this against uh, specific people, either missing persons or uh, someone who you have only one element of information about, then you have to check hundreds of other resources. And r r rightfully said, like you put it, it's mostly online information, but it could be offline as well. It could be records that are not yet online. It could be um, uh, government records that have not yet been on public websites. It could be information that's buried deep into the internet where a Google search will not get you there. So Google will only get you probably 30% of the information. The rest of it is other data pieces that are still publicly available, but you need to know how to find them. And most importantly, you need to know how to connect the dots. Um, what are some of those um, public data points like you mentioned, like government records? Yeah, so there's, so there's multiple fields within OSINT. So if I'm investigating, let's say if, if I'm doing a pen test, uh, OSINT is the first step or reconnaissance phase as they call it. Um, that's 
under corporate OSIN. So the tools you mentioned about a corporation looking at their um, government records, where was the organization established, who are their uh, members, what are their addresses, their phone numbers are usually listed, um, when they came into uh, being uh, the organization, uh, when the website was created, those dates are important, who registered it, um, all those things. Most of these things cannot be Googled, but they can be easily obtained if you know uh, where to find them. Uh, if you're a government entity, if you deal with the D Department of Defense, all your information is public about what projects you want, how much uh, was the cost of those projects. If you're a school teacher, your your salary is published online if you know where to find it. Uh, so so depending on the use case uh, for pen testers, it's it's more technical information about technology that's being used in an organization. So if I know that my target uses, as an example, Cisco routers, uh, then I go research about uh, that specific brand, what flaws exist to attack it. How do I find those brands? Again, a Google search will not tell me these. There are other open source tools like this Shodan.io, the, the, the search engine for Internet of Things where I can see webcams and traffic lights and stuff like that. So those things help. If it's a personal search, I look up their home records. Uh, most home records, in fact, all home records are public um, uh, knowledge. Go to their, your county's website and see who owns that house. Um, you get their actual name. So there's these things as well. With all this information out there, um, I, f I feel like if people understood that, um, the harm that it could do, um, people would be a little bit more worried about the, the stuff that they share online or the information that they allow to get out into public. I feel like more um, more bad people know how to use these methods of, of exploiting information online to find things about people than the good people do. Um, and it, it sort of benefits the those that want to do bad because it's just it's widely available. Correct. No, I, I agree with you 100%. And this is why I do a lot of these webinars and or in-person events uh, to showcase some of this information, to show people how easy it is to exploit uh, a person's information. So doxing is a process where a hacker takes your information. Um, and this usually comes out of the gaming world, where two people are playing online games and one person is winning. So the loser basically takes his opponent's information, like his name, his phone number, and then goes uh, out and does OSINT on him, you know, uh, information search, and then gets his home address, his social security number from hacked databases, um, his father's name, his, his uh, criminal records, pretty much everything about a person and posts it online for everyone else to exploit. People start calling them, people start harassing them. Um, uh, the worst that has happened is, yeah, people have called the police on them um, and people have Okay, died. so that's similar to like um, what they do to like streamers. They like, they, they'll like send the cops to their house while they're like live streaming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Absolutely. So, and, and that has ended up taking some lives because they resisted arrest and the cops, you know, shot at them thinking they were criminals. So creating this confusion through the process of doxing, that's, uh, that creates a lot of uh, distress among society. And they do it for celebrities all the time, for people they hate. And you, the reasons are usually very petty. Somebody got pissed off or somebody wrote a bad comment online. Uh, it's, it's, 
it's hard to protect yourself from. But once that happens, people suddenly wake up and say, hey, my information is uh, freely available. Let me start now protecting it a little bit. I had a musician that I had work, was working with and he had gotten his name trademarked. And when we went onto the uh, patent site to check the trademark information, it had, his, it had an address all out there. So <laughs> that's probably one of these other resources that you're talking about that you use to find out information. But yeah, man, it's crazy. Me as a normal person, I'm, I'm really tripped out by all this hacking stuff. What really kills me is the, maybe you can give me some clarity on it. So like the Bluetooth hacking, have you guys heard when they were like, Oh, they're hacking those little hoverboards or they're hacking people's phones using Bluetooth. I don't know if that touches on what you were talking about when you do the physical pen test, like on location. I don't know if it's similar to that, but that shit is crazy. Yeah. I'm, I, I give a talk about this uh, here at a university once called IOT insecurity of things uh, where I talked about all these uh, connected devices like refrigerators or drones or anything with an IP address, uh, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, and on how easy it is to hack. The, the, the purpose of all of that exposure was to tell uh, design students that <clears throat> when you design uh, applications or design devices, uh, factor in security. So security should never be added on to these things. It should be part of the process. So when you know drones have been hacked uh, in the past, they still are because the Wi-Fi system of those is not as secure as it should be. Uh, you know, Nest thermostats or, or Alexas and all these things. It's very easy to hack these things because the manufacturer doesn't put security first. Um, has anyone it, ever hacked a Tesla? <laughs> Not so far. So um, I've, I follow that very closely. Uh, the, the only hacks that have happened so far have been um, very, very minimal in nature. So, you know, there, there's actually a hacking com competition that goes out every year. Tesla takes part of it, uh, part in it. And I think one, uh, the past, I think a year or two ago, uh, the, the grand prize was if somebody could hack uh, with uh, a hack a Tesla system, they would get a Model 3 and a team of hackers did win that. Uh, but the way they hacked it was they just hacked the, um, the MMI console or um, uh, the dashboard, the screen that you see in front. Uh, there's a web page, you can actually browse the internet uh, in a Tesla. So they hacked that page and they basically corrupted something there. And that that's how they won that competition. But remotely hacking it and controlling it hasn't been done yet. Tesla actually takes their security seriously. Jeep yeah, has a lot been of, hacked and others have been. A lot of companies, um, they'll, they'll put out like a advertisement almost to say, break our system and we'll, we'll mm -hmm. pay you. Uh, I think I saw one recently. It's called bug bounties. Yeah, from a gaming company recently put one out for $100,000. I forgot which one it was. Um, some people are actually saying it's not enough. They need, they need more. But they were actually asking that people to break their like anti-cheat system. Yeah, it's a trend now. It's called bug bounties. Uh, they, they publish these bug bounties. So they say, if you can find a flaw in our system, we'll pay you. So instead of hacking, uh, instead of uh, hiring these uh, pen testers, they just open it up to the market and say, whoever succeeds gets the, gets the bounty, basically. I think yeah, it's a very good way of doing it. Yeah, it's great. Because, I mean, you probably have some of, the, some of the people that would have spent their time doing something um, malicious, malicious. Or probably like, hey, I can... I, I'm good at this. Let me see if I can win some money. Uh, yeah. 
that's that awesome taking some to of me. the people away <laughs> that's crazy that's like a whole underworld but that's what it is right like i mean i'm sure I, I don't know if you would like if you liked it or not but that old school movie hackers from like back in the 90s that was mm-hmm. like that was like my first introduction to what even the idea of what hacking was and the, the way you guys are making it sound it really feels like this crazy underworld and it's scary enough with the things you're talking about and so for me that's why i brought up the tesla because it's even going to be even more crazier once we start technology starts taking more of our lives over like the refrigerator right is a refrigerator going to kill somebody it's it's just really crazy to me or you can just do well, not, so much. i think we already have concerns with the refri- like the refrigerator doesn't have le- like it can't doesn't have a mind of its own yet right but what what i feel like a lot of these internet connected devices are doing are like constantly learning or constantly mining data, so to speak, right? Um, yeah, they're, they're sending th- it back. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're sending it back to the, their mothership. So if you have any Google devices in your house, it's communicating back to Google, telling them everything, you know, it's called telemetry data. Um, they're, they're basically providing all the information they can, what time, you know, they were connected, what did you say in the microphone, um, all these things they're recording and analyzing so that they can give you a better so-called quote-unquote experience, you know, an ad experience. It's all about ads. They're using that information um, to, to, to get better advertising to you and make more money out of you. Yeah, I mean, every app you download has, uh, you have to agree to their privacy policy, but right. I feel like we're, con- we're so used to just hitting yes. We're like, oh, we need, to, we need this app, let's just hit yes, but we don't actually read what they're allowed to do. So for the average person, I mean, what, what's something you tell people or you explain to someone in a simple way to kind of get them to start questioning some of it? And that's a tough one to explain from a technology perspective. So the way I explain is through examples on when this went bad. So the majority of the time, uh, you know, their intentions are not to cause harm. These data collectors like uh, Google, Apple, Microsoft, whatever you name it, all the big companies, the intentions are to make money out of you. One thing go wrong, when they get hacked and that data falls in the hands of someone else, that's when things kind of get uh, you know, messed up a little. Uh, or if this data is misused, like um, you know, there was that case with that guy who was uh, riding a bike uh, next to a house that got burglarized. And this was like all over the news um, this year in January, I believe. And what happened was he was a suspect in that burglary because he had um, this app that monitors his um, uh, bike ride and his location services were on. Uh, the police could not figure out who broke into the house. So what they did was they asked Google. They gave Google a subpoena saying who, whoever's phones were around the area and they were logged into um, Google at that time, give us their data, give us their names. So this guy's name was in it. Police knocked on their door, said you're a suspect to, to a crime. And now you have to defend yourself. Poor guy had to hire a lawyer, spend thousands of dollars uh, uh, to defend himself. And at the end, he was obviously innocent, but he happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So examples like this kind of convince me and, 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 and show the nature of why all this data collection is not right and why privacy should be taken a little bit more seriously. And that's kind of similar to, it makes me think about when they were talking about how the facial recognition stuff was either racist or didn't work properly and just put people in 
you know, situations kind of like that guy who's riding his bike. And that's why it, it sounds like you said there is a plus side to getting it, but the, the downside or pretty much you're saying we need to tread more carefully on this moral path when it comes to data collection. Right. There should be restrictions on, on the companies that are collecting data. Every time there's a breach, you know, name any company out there, any big organization, they've all been breached. Our data has been out in the market. What does the company do in response to a breach? Nothing. They apologize saying, sorry, we got breached. There should be more stringent uh, guidelines around um, data of the collection of data and how they collect it, what they use it for. Fortunately, laws are changing now. Um, in the U.S. and worldwide, um, but it's extremely slow, and we still don't control our own data. Our data is being either used against us or to make money, and we are not part of that. So all these things don't benefit us. What would you say is the biggest hack of the decade, the biggest data breach? You know, if, if you had to pick one, is there one that you could really definitively say this has been the biggest one, the, the most damage or, you know, the most important? I wouldn't say there's one big one, uh, especially being in this field. Every day I hear of a major data breach. You know, people think of data breaches as, oh, the Target got hacked, Sony got hacked, um, you name it. Uh, every company, the FBI got hacked, the government's been hacked many times. Uh, so... Every data breach has its own pain points. If it doesn't affect you, you won't really care about it. Hey, my information wasn't there. I'm not a Marriott customer, so my data wasn't really there. Uh, so you really don't care about it. But every hack has its, um, its drawbacks. And, and what it does is, I would say the biggest data breach in this case is that Pandora's box that has been opened, hack after hack after hack. And the problem is it's not stopping. People are still not taking it seriously. And it's become a joke now. Uh, every script kid, yeah, any kid who knows how to hack even a little bit is, is taking a jab at it. And half of them are succeeding. Uh, so it's, it's this culture of um, people have become kind of immune to it. They're like, yeah, we hear about data breaches every day. That is the major issue here. The, I would call it the, the decade of uh, uh, the, the hacks. It's, it's, it's so rampant that I can't really put my finger to one anymore. So we, I guess the solution for, for that problem would be, or at least part of the solution would be from an end user perspective, like, would you think educating people on how to protect their data, you think would that help? Yeah, I believe the number one defense in this scenario is user awareness. Um, it, it starts from us. We are the ones being hacked. It is our data that's being hacked. So once people are more aware of the repercussions of data loss, um, they'll start protecting it. Um, they, they will never take privacy serious until it affects them or someone close to them or they see the effects of it. So it's, it's our jobs as cybersecurity professionals um, to, to bring this in front of people who are not so aware of uh, the dangers of, of such things. So it starts with awareness. Everything else follows. You know how to protect yourself. Uh, that that's going to be different in in every scenario. There's going to be technical controls, policy controls, procedural. Um, there, there's a whole scenario to that. Stuff like this will always keep cybersecurity professionals uh, in a job. But yeah. it always starts with uh, awareness. How do you, how do you feel about um, grade schools teaching? 
data, uh, teaching kids about whether it's high school or middle school about data privacy um, and security awareness. I think it's I think it's something that should be implemented. It should have been implemented years ago. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Since, you know, back in my days, when, uh, when I had a computer, we had nothing like Facebook or Instagram and all those things. So these things are not as important. We didn't grow up with phones. I think my first fo- mobile phone was in university. And I shared it with my brother, because uh, we couldn't afford two separate uh, uh, smartphones, so to speak. Uh, but nowadays, you know, I have kids, they, uh, you know, they don't have phones yet. Uh, they're, they're too young, uh, but they're on iPads. They know how to log into uh, a laptop. They know passwords. They know all these things. It is way more important to educate them at this stage uh, rather than it was at, uh, in our generation. So I think it should be absolutely compulsory. It should start from the home. It should start from the parents uh, teaching them about uh, privacy more than security. Uh, security is not so much in their hands, but privacy definitely is. How much data you choose to share uh, is up to you. I definitely yeah. think being educated is a big p- part of it. Because what I hear you saying, the you know the the greatest offense is a good defense. So if we were to be prepared about these different scenarios, understand you know data collection and all these things, we would put more thought into it. it. I mean, not to draw this parallel, but the virus that's out now, the coronavirus, I feel like people didn't take it serious until, like you said, until it affects them or affects someone close to them and they started looking at it more serious. And I think that is very interestingly the same when it comes to learning about being hacked or worrying about being hacked. Yeah, it starts early. <laughs> Just like the virus you mentioned, uh, once your data is out there, it's really hard to you know roll it back and undo the damage that has been done Um, i struggle with this a lot as a privacy professional as well people come to me and say hey we our information is all over the internet how do we clean it up Um, i'm like this is not an easy process this will take months um, if not years to really wipe clean all um, the damage that has been done over uh, the past couple of years. So th- the best case scenario is, you know, start clean, start with privacy in mind, uh, start by not exposing the data and controlling the things that you um, choose to put online. This mm-hmm. way, when you want to pull it out, um, you have full control over it. That's important, I think, um, to have control over your data. There's this side of the argument that says that we should be compensated for the for how our data is used for profit and um, things of that nature. So outside of your regular um, day-to-day as a pen tester, I know you, um, you teach and you educate people. Um, you're really active in the cyber community. Um, outside of your webinars, do you do anything else? In terms of? Um, uh, it, in terms of like the- your, your educational uh, platforms. Like I've only attended your webinars. That was very recently. Um, do you have any plans yeah. for anything else? I try to do similar like outreach type of um, things um, within the community. Um, These days it's in the form of a webinar uh, because we can't get out as much. But um, I used to do a lot of um, in-person events once a month. Um, Used to go out, you know, to the to a certain university or community um, and do awareness events. 
awareness about the multiple fields within this realm of cybersecurity, how hackers hack, you know, the, just the basics, uh, the importance of privacy, what is social engineering, all those type of things. These are concepts that uh, hackers are using to exploit us. So I feel it's my job to go out, use the knowledge and educate people and you know, bring them some value out of this. So I spend a lot of time doing that. My policy is knowledge and education should be free. Um, it's how you implement it or how you take action that you know, make, makes a business out of it. No, that's, I think that, that's awesome that you're using your free time outside of your normal um, responsibilities to educate people. I think that's important. Um, that's definitely something people need. I wish there was an easier way for the rest of the cyber community to um, to help in that. Um, and people yeah, are yeah. very busy. Yeah, <laughs> I've noticed that there's plenty of cybersecurity professionals out there, uh, plenty of pen testers, but this field involves you so much in your work that um, you just don't have time anymore to do uh, community outreach. So I feel it's very important to, uh, to educate the masses uh, because technology has bursted out of control. Uh, it's, it's grown exponentially. Nobody has had time to put in all the due diligence, all the controls in place. So this is why it's, like I said before, it's become like a Pandora's box. Everything's gone whack. And people are not stopping because uh, both sides of the story, you know, technology is progressing, companies are making money, hackers are progressing. Uh, it's not worth uh, stopping all those things because industries are moving forward faster than the damage is being done. So it's a, uh, uh, it's, it's a weird situation. Security is falling behind in terms of the, the workforce. It absolutely is. Um, when you hear every few days in the news that something's being breached or hacked or broken, security is absolutely falling behind. Um, I, I do penetration tests all the time. And sometimes I, I laugh. Uh, I, I tell some of the clients that spare yourself the money that you're going to spend for a pen test. Uh, I'll give you the results right now. I write an F on a piece of paper. <laughs> I'm like, here you go. You need to put in all the checks and balances first before you really test your systems. Because uh, I think it was one FBI director who said there's, there's two types of clients out there. Uh, one that have been hacked uh, and the other is the one that doesn't know that they've been hacked yet. <laughs> That's Which one's worse? It's clearly the one. Uh, <laughs> the latter, I think. So yeah. is that the top of the top when you talk about hackers or these pen testers, you know, who are fighting against the bad guys, so to speak? Is Are the government agencies, you know, the top? Or is it the, a tech company that maybe has, you know, the cream of the crop? I think it's everyone across the board because... There, there are different types of hackers out there. Um, there are nation state hackers who don't care about money. They care about um, defaming other nations. Uh, there are hacktivists, uh, again, who don't care about money or um, anything else. Their agenda is they believe in a certain ideology, whether political, religious, uh, moral, whatever. Um, and then there are those who are obviously out for money, for ransom. That's where ransomware type of things spread. So, so since there are so many types of hackers out there, um, their, their, their targets are all over the place. 
I recently gave a lecture on nonprofits and how nonprofits are a big target because they don't have money for security to protect themselves, uh, yet they have a lot of money because a lot of people donate to them. So their targets are um, usually the ones who are after these scams, telephone type of scams, email scams, send us money because we're you know, a donor or, or whatnot. So everyone's threat level is different. And I would say everyone is at risk because name any category and there's some type of malicious actor out there that's out to harm them. That's just the nature I, I of- I see what uh, you're saying. It's just yeah. in the field, it has all these specialized chambers. It has someone to worry about X, Y, Z. Yeah, there's all sorts of bad people out there, unfortunately, and they don't categorize themselves to a certain vertical. Yeah. Whatever is their drive, whether it's money, whether it's politics, whether it, whatever it is, that's the fuel to their fire. And most of the times it's just for fun. Just because I can hack, I want to test my skills. Let me pick the weakest target before I really go out for the big players out there. So most of the time it's, it's really that. Yeah. Wow. Have and these noticed, people, go ahead. Oh, go ahead sorry, I was going to ask if you've noticed any changes in um, sort of like the, the, the scammer landscape now because of the, the virus has, I know like a lot of those uh, call centers um, have been shut down because of, because of lockdowns. So the scammers aren't out there making those calls, you know, 12 hours a day. Um, have you noticed anything or have you read anything to indicate like a change in that or that we'll, we'll see an increase once lockdowns, once lockdowns are like lifted? That's kind of interesting. You know, I never thought about that, but uh, most of the call center agents may have yeah, also been affected. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I've, I don't get, I haven't gotten a robocall in a month. <laughs> <laughs> and I usually That's answer like, those and I hit, immediately hit zero because it connects me to the guy behind the phone <laughs> um, and I would waste their time. And I'm like, man, they haven't called me in, in a couple of weeks. That's the same thing I do, bro. I talk to them <laughs> in my Tony two-time voice. I just string them on for a minute. I tell them I got the credit card numbers, but my cousin's coming from around the corner. <laughs> so you just got to wait on the phone with me for a little bit. And yeah, we get into some interesting conversations. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you and me the same, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I waste <laughs> time as well. It, it's yeah, so I mean, fun. I, I started doing that after I came across a YouTube video of a guy mm -hmm. actually like hacking a call center because they mm -hmm. were... Uh, he found yeah, some, it was a Jim Knowles or something. Yeah, Jim Brolin. Jim Brolin. Yeah, I follow his uh, videos as well. That guy's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Got a pop up with a phone number, uh, or someone yeah. he knew got a pop up with a phone number, so he called them and then just ended up hacking their systems. And it was so when when uh, someone in the comments actually gave that wrote that you know when you guys get robocalls, just answer. I mean, what what are they gonna do? Just don't give them any of your information. Just waste their time yeah. and have some fun yeah. with it. My favorite <laughs> is the. Uh on YouTube, the African warlord. Have you guys seen that one? Where I everyone's playing Call I've of seen, Duty? Yeah, I've seen the African warlord. Yeah, and he's like, he, he starts gibber, like starts saying some crazy dark magic prayer on him and saying where they live <laughs> at and then like pulling their address. It's fucking crazy. And these oh. little kids are fucking freaking out. <laughs> I gotta check that out. That's yeah, funny. it's great. It's, he's it's like, called the, what is he it called? their yeah. name, right? He says their name, their address. He knows stuff about their family. Like he, he just does, he does some sort of quick investigation on the fly. I, I'm not sure his techniques, but I'm sure he does some form of OSINT on as well as hacking to figure out where, where they are and just scares the living crap. And then he does his voice like, I know where you are. Yeah. 
Like this crazy <laughs> African voice, and these people are freaked out. They log off immediately. Right, but speaking check this of out. games, uh, Michelle, do you still game? Because I know you say what kind of kicked all this off for you was Doom. I don't play any games anymore. Um, I, I stopped playing a couple of years ago. Well, probably a decade ago. Uh, but I, ju I just haven't had any time anymore. Yeah, I get that. Definitely about time. I used to game myself just, just for stress relief. I mean, I'm a graphic designer, but I would just play just to take my mind away. But I know it's so hard. You, your field has low stress because for my uh, stress relief, I actually draw. I do some graphic designing on the side to yeah, relieve the, some of the stress of my life. <laughs> man, this this has been very interesting. I guess I just have one last question on my end. Since you were talking about technology advancing, Bilal, you had the question about is, you know, is security falling behind it, um, in terms of compared to the workforce? For, is that correct? Is that mm -hmm. what you were saying? Yeah. So I hear a lot about artificial intelligence where does that come into the realm when it comes to using these different hacking tools? Is it stuff that's being created? I mean, I know we've always seen the movie where they put in the chip and it runs through all the number algorithms to find the code. Is there something like of that sort going on? Or is there something as well where, say, these different methods that you may use, right? Is there a way to program them? into an artificial intelligence that would do that same path, that would run those same motions? There is yes and no. Um, you see all these uh, vendors out there, like the cybersecurity vendors advertising with buzzwords like AI, machine learning, blockchain, you, know, you name it. Uh, so th they're all advertising this, but in reality, it is not at the level that you know, you are talking about where everything's automated at this uh, at a certain level. Automation exists for sure um, in the field of open source intelligence and pen testing. There's plenty of automation. There are plenty of ways to you know take down something that takes an hour to shorten it to you know uh, five minutes or whatnot. So yeah, tools exist for AI and automation. Uh, I think on my last webinar I, I showed a tool called uh, "This Person Does Not Exist." Uh, those images are created through artificial intelligence. So on the fly, AI is creating random human beings' faces, which look uh, almost you know, like a real human being. Most of the times, people can't tell the difference. And those images are being used to create fake profiles, um, aliases, and stuff like that. So yes, it's being used for malicious purposes, AI. And it's also being used um, for, for good. Um, to, to cut down on a lot of investigative work based on analysis of really large sets of, of, of data. Some of the tools I use to, um, to track down you know, targets um, is a collection of AI-based tools, or you know, I, I really don't want to say AI, but it's mostly automation. So, you know, sifting through thousands and thousands of records, someone has created smart algorithms that do it for you, prediction mechanisms that predict what you may be looking for. Google does a lot of that, but it's not at the level where it's so automated that, you know, the robots are taking over the world. It's, gotcha. It's, it's more algorithm that. based right now where, right. where you're just running the sequence versus it operating on its own. Right. So automation is probably a better word uh, here rather than uh, AI. Got it. Interesting. And we, cool. we, we covered cool. a lot. Um, and I feel like we could go into each one of these things we talked about and spend another hour 
um, but we'll save that for another time. <laughs> All right. But yeah, man, thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time, and we I I enjoyed your uh, your webinar, and I thought, man, we have to have this guy on the show, um, just talk talk about security, and um, I think uh, we kind of scratched the surface of like educating um, the average person, but definitely in the future. I mean, I want to have you back and maybe have a bit more focused session on how we can um how the average person can uh you know make small changes in their habits and and the way they the way they act online or even in person um to be more secure to, to protect their data and their family yeah i'll be interested in that for the next one because this alone has been for someone that's not in the tech field it's been really interesting just to kind of like you said, you know, take it a little bit more serious, a lot yeah, more the, the, serious. Yeah, no, no, thank you guys. This is um, th this has been a pleasure.